We greet you this morning in the name of Christ, our Lord, who's the head of the church, and count it a joy to be with you. I do thank your pastor for this invitation, and I invite you to open your worship guide or turn in your scripture to the 20th chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, which was our scripture call to worship. And while you're turning, I do thank the Lord for seeing my brother Stephen Harris here in Sunny. Uh, he works with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He's legislative liaison something but he's he's our Daniel in Babylon that's who he is and so I thank the Lord for him and his family we read together the call to worship and in this passage of scripture God is revealing himself to his chosen people. The nation of Israel, the sons of Jacob and their descendants whom he has brought out of the land of Egypt. And it is very important that we give value to the fact that first impressions matter. And this is God introducing himself to his people. Some people liken this to the marriage between God and the people of Israel. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. And so as he begins to unveil and reveal himself to them, we begin to learn many characteristics and attributes of God. Throughout the rest of the law, Exodus and into Numbers and in Deuteronomy, God opens up his law to his people, and in doing so, he reveals his character and his nature. Uh, this year, uh, in my role, I preach in a different church almost every Sunday, and so I maintain my regular pastoral habit of... Uh, sermon preparation and I've been preaching through the Baptist faith and message this year and I noted that the Baptist faith and message is listed on your website among confessions and creeds of Christianity and the second article focuses on God um, and it has various paragraphs related to the Trinity but there's an introductory article that says, there's an introduction to the article which says, there is one God and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him, 
we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. And so in the introduction or in the first impression that God gives his people, very early on, he declares the expectation and the command that we would exclusively and with priority worship, serve, and obey him. And we live in a context and a cultural setting, and it's always been the case, where there have been idols, where there have been false gods, where there have been man-made gods, where there have been human beings themselves who have desired to be worshipped as God. We're living in that context that God's people have always lived in, and so we need to be mindful and regularly devote ourselves to considering the exclusive call that God makes upon human beings to follow him. Jesus says, for example, in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Peter says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, very soon after the day of Pentecost, there is no other name given among men whereby they might be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. And so that exclusive impulse in the Scripture, throughout the Scripture, that priority impulse throughout the Scripture pushes against some of the New Age spirituality tendencies, philosophical tendencies of our culture. Uh, One being ideological pluralism. Uh, Not demographic or pragmatic or realistic pluralism, the fact that there's just a lot of people in our country and we have a country with free speech and freedom of religion and those types of things. And so certainly after the 60s and a broader immigration policy, there would be a whole lot of people in America besides just Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. But not just the acknowledgement of that, but the acknowledgement that all these different people who make different truth claims and different ultimate truth claims and different religious truth claims, all of their truth claims can be equally true. That's the precept of ideological pluralism. And it pushes against everything that the Scripture teaches about the exclusivity of God. Scripture uses clear categories like truth and false. Scripture uses categories like prophets and false prophets, God and idols, righteousness and wickedness. And so ideological pluralism doesn't stand the test of the Scripture. It feels good, it smells good, it's politically correct, but it doesn't stand the test of Scripture. Then there's inclusivism. The belief that we can kind of have the base of Christianity 
Uh, but it's all right if we bring in some of these other truth claims from other religions. And let's just see kind of what we can blend together without it getting offensive. Um, there have been seasons of church history where certain traditions within the Christian church have approached missiology in that context. And it's been very unfruitful and unhelpful for the furtherance of the gospel. And it's very much a slippery slope that leads to idolatry and a perverting of Christian truth and ultimately the glory and the exclusive glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ideological pluralism, inclusivism, um, and then probably like the one that's the most odious is syncretism. Because today, hey, let's just put all this stuff together and call it something different. Or, you know, maybe really Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Or, you know, maybe all the particularities of God. You know, I just want to love God. I don't want to get into the particularities. So whatever you choose to call God, however you imagine God. But it's really interesting that throughout the scriptures, God reveals himself to his people in a particular way. And so here's the first impression. God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So when is the last time in our PC soft-talking world you've heard someone talk about the jealousy of God? God is a jealous God. And he's not like jealous in the fine print like, let me say this to you at some point. He, he's like jealous, like in the first impressions. I mean, like, you, you know, if you learn the Ten Commandments in Sunday school and you memorize the Ten, this is like 1A. As a matter of fact, I'm more convinced now about Bible memorization versus memorizing Bible stuff because if you just memorize the Ten Commandments, like I grew up in Sunday school, no other God, you don't even get the whole weight of God being a jealous God because that doesn't fit in like three little words you can write on the board. This is introductory stuff. This is like foundational stuff. This is like God 101. I'm a jealous God. Now, I know that sounds funny to some of y'all because you dated some nuts in high school. God's jealousy is not like the jealousy that you would imagine with people. <laughs> don't, don't, don't forget the essence of God. God is holy. 
We sang this morning, he's thrice holy, 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 holy. So everything about God is holy. His love is holy. His wrath is holy. His mercy is holy. His goodness is holy. His power is holy. Everything about God is holy. So his jealousy is holy. Before we get here in Exodus, we read in Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth, and God created male and female in his image. He created humans. So God can have a claim on stuff that no girl could have on some dude she was dating or no dude could have on some girl he was dating because God really truly does own everything. Israel used to sing a song about this. The earth is the Lord's the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. So God can be jealous of anything and everything because anything and everything is his. Belongs to him. One of the hard things of preaching is you know the middle and the end of the sermon and you get all the happy and excited at the beginning of the sermon, but you have to like patiently walk people through the sermon. So I'm always telling myself, calm down, calm down, calm down. This is God 101. And what's interesting, if you talk to people of religions of the world, they understand exclusivity. I mean, only people don't get exclusivity are like people in the university context that want to make everything mushy and like oatmeal and, and people in the media. I mean, like real Muslims get it. Like Muslims that go to the mosque and pray, they get it. Real Jews get it. It's just like these watered-down American versions of everything. They don't get it. The nominal cultural... <clears throat> Every church kind of has different vocabulary, so I always have to, like, screen myself because I never know the vocabulary in different churches. I mean, when I was in Kentucky, I would say, like, the nominal cultural crap Muslims and Jews, but crap is a bad word for some people, so... The, the ones that don't mean anything. It's just, I'm a Jew entitled. I'm a Catholic entitled. I'm a Christian entitled. I'm a Muslim entitled. Yeah, they don't get exclusivity, but every devout believer, even of world religions, they get exclusivity. They make truth claims. They deny something about Jesus that the Scripture proclaims about Jesus. So God says, I'm a jealous God. Please note, this is something you don't get when you memorize the Ten Commandments. In verse 1 and verse 2, the basis for them even caring about God's revelation, the basis for them even caring about God's commands is the relationship that they have with God based upon His generous, gracious, merciful actions towards them. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's like God's business card in the Old Testament. Anytime Israel wanders, he reminds them of who he is, his character and his nature, and he reminds them of what he has done for them. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I find it strange sometimes Christians are bothered when non-Christians reject 
Christian truth claims, but remember, my brothers and sisters, our acceptance of Christian truth claims is not based upon our intellectual grasp of these things. Our acceptance of the revelation of God and the Word of God is based upon the Holy Spirit's work in us and giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to believe in the Word of God. For remember, Paul says, no one calls Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So he reminds them of who he is and what he's done for them. I'm bothered that these people of these world religions don't receive what God has said. Why, why, why would you think that? Why would you expect that? He, he's speaking to the Israelites that he has brought up out of Egypt and the mixed multitude that came up with them. When God does this God 101 revelation of himself, he's not speaking to the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Moabites, and any other ites. He's speaking to the Israelites and the mixed multitude that came up out of Egypt with them. Or what we would call in your new members class or basic doctrine class, special revelation versus general revelation. He's speaking specifically to them. I am the Lord your God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. There's a deliverance element that must be experienced for one to embrace the truth of God's word and his revelation. The natural man will not discern the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. Therefore, for one to believe the truth of God, you must have that experience of John chapter 3 where you must be born again. So, I want to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within me. I want to be able to intelligently articulate the Christian truth claims, but I also want to be mindful of the fact that the person I'm talking to in my family or the person I'm talking to in my neighborhood, they will repent of sin and acknowledge who Jesus is and their need upon him, of him, when the Holy Spirit changes them. I won't argue them into salvation. I won't argue them into understanding the exclusive priority nature of God and how he calls people to worship him in that manner. It's the work of God among those whom he has delivered. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So if in the ancient world, God, if in the ancient world there were a lot of gods and idols and false idols and false gods, then, then, then we shouldn't be so impressed with stuff. So I moved from Kentucky to the Baptist Convention in Maryland and Delaware. And so they, oh man, you know you're going to the Mid-Atlantic and it's much more cosmopolitan and uh, integrated and new age and man, it's just a whole different kind of spirituality going on there. Yeah, man, it's much more complicated than Canaan. <laughs> yeah, it's much more complicated than Rome. Man, it's just so wild up there and all the sexuality of the culture and all. Yeah, 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 it's much more perverted than Rome. Brothers and sisters, one of the grounding things about the scripture is that you can live your life knowing there is nothing new under the sun. 
Christians grieve over sin and fallenness. Christians grieve over wickedness, but Christians don't walk around surprised at everything every day. Say, oh my goodness, man, I can't believe the two choices we got for president last year in the primaries. Oh, I just can't believe it. Uh, what can't you believe? I mean, why wouldn't a materialistic, consumeristic culture with the idols of power, sex, and money have two bad choices for president? Why, why, why are you shocked about that? <laughs> What's been done has been done, and what shall be has already been done. There's nothing new under the sun, and God shall not be mocked. You shall reap what you sow. So I think we had the two perfect presidential candidates that match our corrupt culture. The Bible says in the fourth verse, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Lest you think this is much to do about nothing, we're in Exodus chapter 20, and only 12 chapters later in Exodus 32, they're engaged in idolatry with the golden calf. You know, one of the arrogant, haughty things about contemporary Christians is we don't think that the warnings of Scripture apply to us. Oh, look what those Israelites did. Oh, how could Judah do that? Oh, how could David do that? Oh, how could Joshua not clean everything? Oh, oh, we, we, we don't think that the failings and the fallenness and the sinfulness and the warnings of Scripture apply to us. Twelve chapters later, they're engaged in broad idolatry. So this is a major thing. This is a constant pull. Our brother opened us in prayer this morning talking about the idols of our hearts and the things that we, the things that we are distracted by that pull us away from loyalty to Christ. We used to sing a hymn in the church, loyalty, loyalty, loyalty to Christ. One thing that we've lost kind of in the contemporary kind of laid-back approach to Christianity is we lost some of the militancy of Christianity. Loyalty to Christ. Rise up, O man of God. Onward, Christian soldiers. There was a certain kind of commitment to the Lord that was rooted in kind of the patriotism of our era. And we said, well, you know, we're in a much kind of cooler, laid-back kind of setting. And we've lost some of that militant-associated loyalty. All of us are susceptible to idols. If you look in Exodus 32, God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. By the time you get to chapter 32, they're saying, this calf brought us up out of Egypt. God says in Exodus 20, don't bow down and worship anything as God. By the time you get to Exodus 32, they're bowing down and worshiping the calf. And God says, 
honor me. And by the time you get to Exodus 32, they're meditating upon the calf. What does idolatry look like? What provokes the jealousy of God? When you're declaring other things in a way that you should declare him? When you're serving other things in a way that you should serve him? And when you're meditating on other things in a way that you should be meditating upon him? But that's three different questions. So I try to just kind of fashion things into one question. Is there anything that you would not give up if God so required? That's probably an idol. So the churches that I've had the privilege of pastoring, I'm amazed that the Christian families that don't want to give up comfort and ease when their teenager or young adult comes to me and says, Pastor, I think I'm called to the mission field and I want to go to the 1040 window with IMB. I'm amazed at the parents that come to me on the side and say, Oh, please don't encourage that. Wow. The American dream and middle-class comfort is that important that you would minimize their calling that they sense from the Lord? I'm amazed at the Christian families that teach their children to honor the Lord in their sexuality and avoid fornication and other such sexual sins. And then in their teenage years or early 20s, they come to me and they say, Pastor... I love Jimmy or I love Mary. We want to get married. And their wonderful parents, they sneak to me on the side again. It's, it's, it's interesting the kind of conversations people have with pastors like on the side. Pastor, please don't encourage that. Uh, we want them to finish college first and we want them to have a certain kind of income first and we love them to get established in their careers. And we, I mean, they just have this whole extra biblical list that has nothing to do with glorifying God and more to do with impressing their friends. It doesn't take long for idols to sneak up in our heart. We're not better than the Israelites. We, we can't look back in the Old Testament and, and, and look at the uh, fools on Mars Hill and say, ha, 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 I would never do that. We, we, we exactly have the potential to do that. That's why sometimes we even sing a song that says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I imagine y'all sing that here. We, 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 we know it's true. We sing it. We sing it. You've experienced that feeling when you realize, ooh, I'm on the, I'm on the borderline between I like this hobby and idolatry. I mean, I have to do work. I have to do ministry. I have a job. I mean, I could really live my life on my Harley Davidson. I mean, I have a marriage. I have children. I, I, you know, I, 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 you know, so, so the, 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 in a year, one or two, one week, 
10-day trips is probably a, ho a hobby. A one-week or a 10-day trip every month is probably idolatry. Neglecting my wife and kids so I can buy toys for my bike is probably idolatry. Having season tickets to the Ravens in Baltimore and putting $2 in church, that's probably idolatry. We're not better than the Israelites. If this was the first thing God brought up, if this was God 101 according to God, then we need to pay, we need to pay attention to it. Don't make graven images. Don't make likenesses of those things, verse 4. Don't bow down to them in verse 5. And the only thing that's in, verse, that's in Exodus 32 that's not right there in, in, in 4 and 5 is, is the verbal declaration. They begin to declare that the calf was the one who had brought them out of Egypt. So watch what you make. Watch what you serve. Watch what you spend all your time declaring. And I moved here from Kentucky, SEC country, home of the Kentucky Wildcats and the Louisville Cardinals. I moved here from a big sports place. Everybody can talk about sports. Like the two churches I pastored, I can easily tell you the most depressing thing about being a preacher. And I don't know, I, I imagine it wouldn't be the thing here at Delray because you all are just better than the people I pastored. The most depressing thing about preaching is preparing to preach and preaching a sermon and you're tired and you're sweating after the preaching and all that and you come down the steps and some guy comes up and says, oh man, that was a nice sermon. Did you see that game yesterday? That's like the most deflating thing. I spent up here talking about the jealousy of God, the essential being and character of God. And it took you 15 seconds to drift from the consideration of God to the game. Idolatry is seductive and sneaky and slow. Be wary of those things. Why should you not do these things again in verse 5? He said, because I am a jealous God. Don't be scared of that vocabulary. You shouldn't be scared of any vocabulary that's in the Bible. <laughs> My late pastor was a King James Version guy. He was not scared of the King James word for a donkey. <laughs> it would come up quite frequently in his sermons, and we'd be like, <laughs> at some point, you just used to it. And so all the kids knew, yeah, you can say it when you're reading the Bible, but don't say it at home. <laughs> <laughs> don't be scared of biblical framework jealousy the Lord God is a jealous God you, you, you have a stronger platform when you speak from a biblical framework you have the potential for the anointing of the spirit when you speak from a biblical framework like, I do a lot of work with ethnicity and race and class and all those kind of things within the body of Christ and in Southern Baptist life, but I hardly ever talk about ra racial reconciliation. 
I talk about the pursuit of Christian unity that Paul calls us to in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, because then I have a biblical framework for what I'm doing. Plus, I never want to use the same vocabulary they, vocabulary they using at Georgetown and George Washington and American. <laughs> I want a clear biblical frame for what I'm saying. want a clear biblical frame. And in the world of Buddha, Confucius, Allah, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, in that kind of world, God from the beginning reveals himself as a God who demands exclusive and priority loyalty. Last thing I'll share is if you look in verses 5 and 6, the commitment or lack of commitment, the acknowledgement or lack of acknowledgement of the true and the living God has consequences. So, I mean, it's not the best argument, but again, you know, I'm not like trying to be the apologist of the year. But when I talk to people, you know, after about 30 minutes, I mean, that's why I'm a pastor and a preacher and a shepherd of people and all those kind of things. I'm not like, I'm not like a, like in the, in the early church, you had the fathers who guarded truth within the church and you had the apologists who, and, who contended for church and contended for truth and misperceptions of Christianity in the greater Roman Empire. I, I, I'm like a father, an overseer, a shepherd, a pastor. I'm not an apologist because I don't have that apologist kind of patience. Uh, like I love people like Ravi Zacharias. I mean, they'll just sit there with you for like hours and deal with your foolishness. I don't have that kind of patience. <laughs> so after about 30 minutes, definitely no more than 45 minutes, I always want to get to the point of, so what are the consequences if I reject your truth claim that you're making from the Quran or from the holy book of this or from this philosopher or from this thing that you develop versus what are the consequences of rejecting the truth claim of scripture uh, that the God of Israel, the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has revealed. And God says here when he introduces himself, remember this is like God 101. This is not like, oh yeah, let's teach them this like 20 years down the road in the advanced membership class. No, this is God 101. He says in verse 5 and 6, there are consequences for being a worshiper of a false God versus the true and the living God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me. This is not subsequent generations paying for the father, sins of their fathers. This is subsequent generations committing the same sins their fathers committed because they were trained in that way. Sociologists and everybody can tell you about the impact of environment. Uh, before I was a pastor in a church, I was a chaplain in the county jail, I told you, in Hamilton uh, County, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And one of the most depressing things in chaplaincy in the jail it's like when the grandson is on the second floor and the daddy is on the fourth floor and the granddaddy is on the sixth floor. 
I mean, if drinking wasn't a, if getting drunk wasn't a sin, that's the kind of thing make you want to get drunk. That is so discouraging. Second floor, fourth floor, sixth floor, boom. How'd you learn how to sell drugs and run numbers? I learned it from my daddy. How'd you learn how to sell drugs and run numbers? I learned it from my daddy. That's visiting the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generations because they practice the same iniquity. Or in this context, they worship the same idols. But there's also consequences for worshiping the true and living God and knowing who he is and realizing he is a jealous God and worshiping him in an exclusive and a priority way. He says in the sixth verse, I show mercy unto them that love me, that keep my commandments. Now, in a touchy-feely world, in a soap opera Hallmark card world, I mean, I watch HGTV with my wife, uh, but I'll never watch Lifetime TV because you just can't be a man and do that. <clears throat> in that kind of touchy-feely world, always note that in the Old Testament and the New Testament or in the entirety of Scripture, loving God is equated with obeying God. Because sometimes as a pastor, I can sit in an office with somebody and they are actually sitting in my face justifying their sin. But I know, but I just think the Lord want me to be happy and so I should divorce my wife and marry this chick over here. Doesn't God want me to be happy? I love the Lord. I love the Lord. And some people are emotional. They can cry and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's why sometimes I do counseling in a group because, I mean, you know, I admit, you know, crying can kind of affect me sometimes. So I used, to, I used to have this little hard brother that he would, he would be in there sometimes when I was counseling. And he was, uh, again, you know, when you're a pastor, you affect people and sometimes in good ways and sometimes in bad ways. And so I'd be getting all emotional. He'd be like, man, shut up. That's a bunch of crap. <laughs> Thank you, brother. <laughs> Loving God is equated with obeying God. And so if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to urge you, don't arrogantly and proudly think that you're better than the Israelites in some innate way. The same seductions and temptations of Canaan are the same seductions and temptations of Washington or Alexandria or Baltimore or Dover, Delaware. I should say Wilmington, Delaware. Ain't nothing in Dover. Uh, (laughs) Same seductions, Christians. And don't get fooled into playing church show games where you don't take time to examine the priorities of your heart. Like, I don't know the lingo in your church, D D groups or whatever, but that's why every woman needs another woman that can get in her face about the issues of her heart. That's why every man needs another man that can get in his face about the issues 
of his heart. Nothing more than the basics of Wesley's class system of accountability back in the 18th century. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to make this clear to you. God loves sinners. He loves them so much that he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. Matter of fact, the scripture says while we were yet in our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. As a matter of fact, the scripture says in 1 John, this is how we know God loves us. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you've seen some of these prosperity pimps on TV, I'm sorry for that. What what you got, what you drive, where you live, none of that reflects the love of God. 1 John says this is how we know God loved us. He sent his son to be the payment for our sins. Devil worshipers have houses and cars and nice clothes and big big bank, bank accounts. That ain't no indication of the love of God. This is how we know God loves. God tells us how he loves us. He gave his son to be the payment for our sins. And so if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to tell you that the road to reconciliation and unity with God is wide open. But I do want to make sure that you understand this God 101 principle that's not at all in the fine print, but up there is a big billboard. He's a jealous God. And he invites you, as Jesus says in the New Testament, he invites you down the narrow path. It's not the contemporary American inclusivistic or syncretistic or ideological pluralism path. It is the narrow path that leads to life in Christ Jesus. If you're here and you're a guest, at the bottom of your worship guide there, it says, if you have any questions or would like to pray with someone after the service, we invite you to come through the, to the chapel through the doors that are at the right side over here. And the pastors and leaders of this church would love to pray with you and talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But you can't miss this God 101 basic kindergarten truth. God will not share his glory with another, and he calls you to follow him and trust in him in an exclusive priority way. Jesus said, no one can love two masters. Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, you must love me more than everybody. Your father, your mother, your brother, your sister. And then Jesus says, take a mirror and you must love me more than yourself. So I'm calling you to a free road. But I'm not calling you to a cheap road. I'm calling you to the free salvation of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters will be here. Uh, through these doors. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, please make sure you have another brother or sister in your life that can help you examine the matters of the heart. Let's pray together. Father, in a room this large, in this sanctuary, 
the men and women in here have so many things tugging at their heart. May their exclusive and priority commitment be to the Lord God. May they by the Spirit say Jesus is Lord. And in realizing that, may that declaration remind them that no one else is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. And in this self-autonomous, individualistic culture, we are not Lord. May the declaration that Jesus is Lord, which is empowered by the Spirit of Christ himself, be the foundation for these brothers and sisters in Christ. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.